Welcome, friends, people for peace, pods of consciousness, planetary citizens, wherever you happen to be today, listening to local news in social artistry, where we get to talk to people all over the world who are building a more humane world from the inside out. And sometimes that's uh, from the subconscious out, sometimes it's from the gut out. <laughs> Today, we may go all over the place with uh, Dr. Chris Link from Jefferson City. Uh, and I have to give a disclaimer right up front. He's uh, my doctor, so uh, uh, we'll have a good time. <laughs> good morning, Chris. Good morning, Dick. Great to be here. What a beautiful Saturday morning in the fall. Indeed it is. For clarification, some people might have known you as Mark link and others is chris link uh how how do we uh, navigate that for folks on you know looking you up uh, on the internet for some yeah i think in a formal way my name is mark chris link and from a legal and even professional standpoint i'm either listed as mark chris link or m period chris link my mother uh you know who really mothers and fathers you know design how they want their children to be called and 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 my mom i think liked the flow of the mark christopher link as a name uh but wanted to call her her um her third child chris and indeed that's what's happened so i'm a mark christopher link going by chris i'm one of those people and there are many out there that have an initial for a first name m ah uh, well i don't know where my name came from because i was uh called richard Dalton, but nobody calls me that. It's uh, been Dick Dalton since I can ever remember. So one of those oddities as well. So Dr. Chris Link, you're an MD, uh, not a DO. Was that a big decision to make at some time back uh, in medical school or pre-med as to whether you would go MD or DO? I grew up in St. Louis, and in St. Louis, um, there, pre predominantly, there were medical doctors, probably, and I don't know the exact numbers, but probably when I was growing up and in, when I was making the decision to become a physician, 90% or more of the physicians I came in contact with were medical doctors. And the two training programs in St. Louis at Washington University and St. Louis University, I chose St. Louis University, or I should say they chose me. Uh, <laughs> They're both meant, you know, allopathic medical programs. Now, these programs are much the same, but it really wasn't on my radar to become an osteopathic physician because I didn't have any of those role models really right. uh, out there for me to, to see and uh, to be aware of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, although here in Jeff City, we've had uh, Still Hospital, which was an osteopathic hospital for a long, long time, and now a very mixed uh, unit. I don't, I don't know the percentages of docs, but... Uh, it's now Cap Region and DOs, MDs, I think work side by side. As far as oh, absolutely. absolutely. I think in the medical sphere these days that they're generally equivalent and you see them in medical institutions, particularly in places like Missouri and Michigan and other places where there's osteopathic training schools and residency programs as there is at Capital Region. But yeah, it's just nicely inter intertwined. And, and for most people, they really don't see a difference. You know, they're getting good medical care, whether it's from an osteopathic perspective or an allopathic perspective. Really, they're very closely aligned these days. You know, there are osteopaths, and it really came from Dr. Taylor, who really used his hands-on. And there's a tradition of hands-on therapy. Now, many of the osteopathic physicians 
really don't use that as an expertise anymore. Some do. There are a few in our town that are particularly good. And it's a much needed specialty, a focus on the osteopathic hands-on. It's quite, quite important because, you know, when we look at pillars of health, structural health is clearly one of them. You know, for a while, you know, just a really great amount of that in their practice. It's changed somewhat now. Uh, and, and it's maybe some of this is left to physical therapists these days, but nonetheless, this is an important part of health, physical health and, and osteopathic medicine. And those who really specialize in the, you know, the musculoskeletal health are, are uh, very important in our communities and at medical centers, et cetera. So you've trained also with um, what Andy Weil and uh, over into this uh, sort of Chinese or Oriental medicine how did you get drawn into that? Well, let me, let me take you way back. So I, I, I did medical school in St. Louis, was done by 87. I went on the train internal medicine initially, and then I shifted my focus after seeing a physician in the emergency department at St. Louis University. His name was Larry Lewis, who was such a great role model. He was a terrific in, in, in critical situations. He also had a role as a teacher in the institution. And I said, boy, I want to go that direction. And I trained then in emergency and trauma medicine and did that and completed a, completed a four-year residency at the University, excuse me, the Medical College of Wisconsin. Then I went on to practice emergency medicine at, at a trauma center in Minnesota uh, through 1997. And, um, and during that time, I started becoming kind of um, slowed down by some chronic stress and some chronic pain where I would hold chronic musculoskeletal pain and develop some back pain. And I start reaching out in my life. What else could I be doing in regards? I always, always had a bent about self-care and exercise. And, you know, I, I knew some basics about nutrition. And in about that time, I picked up Andrew Weil's book, a very special book called Spontaneous Healing. And if anybody's interested in that, it's a wonderful thing. And, and it really talked about there's more in medicine than necessarily naming a diagnosis and selecting a pharmaceutical to treat that diagnosis that we can really be thinking about the spectrum of things from from really the pillars of health that might include um, modest exercise fabulous nutrition good sleep and and relaxation those four things i really consider um, and so he really opened my mind to the fact that the human body is designed to heal that if we if we put it in fertile soil that is good sleep good nutrition relaxation, good social uh, engagement, that, that human beings thrive. And it's not necessary that we need to go down the, you know, the, the disease progression, pharmaceutical progression. I mean, many people 60 or older have at least two chronic illnesses. They're on you know, two or more medications and they, they've lost some of their vigor and quality of life. And uh, these days we think of not only the length of a person's life, but the length of the quality and highly productive part of their life. And it really slopes off for many adults. So it was in that time period that it started to open my mind to things like osteopathic medicine. He talked about Dr. Fulford, who was a fabulous osteopath in Arizona that taught him about breathing and this therapy called cranial sacral therapy and other things. Um, and he brought that to my attention. I went on in the late 90s to, to do some training at the University of Michigan actually Michigan State, in osteopathic manipulative medicine. And I did spend a couple, uh, I didn't go there as a resident, but I went there, um, you know, time and again over a two-year period, and I learned all sorts of neuromuscular medicine, manipulative medicine, um, all of these different branches, uh, neuromuscular release, much about the health of uh, 
the human body. And I was able to apply that to myself. And then over the next several years, Dick, I started thinking that, you know, emergency medicine is fabulous, but I don't think it's right for my core. And I ended up having even more uh, back-related issues. I ended up with a back surgery. Uh, that really made a difference in my life. But in 2007, I said, you know, I want to do some real training. And so I, I joined the Integrative Medicine Fellowship with uh, the University of Arizona and Dr. Andrew Weil, who is the father of, uh, of integrative medicine in our country, trained at Harvard and uh, in botanical medicine, and then really has explored lots of facets of, of medicine, not just oriental, of course, but all of some of the, all of the cultural traditions from, you know, even uh, Mesoamerica and the shamans, and, but clearly nutrition, clearly exercise, clearly meditation, uh, social engagement, all of these things. That was a two-year program. And then in 2009, I switched from emergency medicine and I opened the integrative medicine clinic. And it's thrived since. Now, you know, we're, gosh, we're starting our 12th year of integrative medicine in Jefferson City. One other thing I'll just mention is that in, the, in about 2015, there's a highly scientific approach to nutritional health. It's called functional medicine. And there's an institute that's now worldwide called the Institute of Functional Medicine, where it relies heavily on understanding the biochemistry of humans and how some, you know, although we're so much alike and our genetics are 99% alike, there's enough differences that some people thrive better with these sorts of nutrition and other people thrive better with others. And you also need to maybe provide some nutritional supplements and so forth to help people achieve their best health. So really understanding how food and nutritional approaches, looking at the Mediterranean diet, looking at vegan and vegetarian diets, looking at higher protein diets and less, less vegetables. For some people, they have trouble. So really trying to understand nutrition and apply it in people's lives in a way that, that allows them to, uh, to use less medication and stay healthier. And so we really look back to the other cultures, you know, like the Ayurvedic and Indian cultures and the the, the Chinese uh, culture that those traditions of medicine, traditional Chinese medicine that included things like that, it, that took care of meditative practices and nutrition and movement and, uh, and social engagement. Yeah. And really so understanding that. And then even looking back a little further than that, Dick, and just understanding that the, the ancestral needs of, of the human organism. And we look back, you know, 50,000 years ago before or greater than 10,000 before there was really agriculture, how did humans live? What did they do? What did they eat? How did they move? And then all the way back to our first, you know, the first, you know, upright hominids uh, two million years ago. And really, and using that ancestral template to let us know about what's possible and maybe what's optimal for human health. So it's a, and, and, and we, you know, as an integrative and functional medicine doctor, I rely on that ancestral template in a big way. So in that context, our access to the nutrients that were in the foods 50,000 years ago uh, may have shifted somewhat with our farming practices or our monoculture foods. You know, now where there's just one kind of potato or now bananas have uh, evolved into this kind of banana that hardly has any protein. How do you navigate, you know, the historical perspective with what's actually available to us today. Well, one of the things I do in my practice is I spend a lot of time te teaching people how to eat and, and uh, there's remarkable changes. Um, but let me just state what I tell people for most people that there's a lot of information out there and, and you and I maybe get into more depth in a minute about how, how those potatoes and bananas and, 
and quality of the food and even the even the minerals and things in the food have changed with our mono crop farming techniques. Uh, but what we know these days is that that if you just there's two things I want people to do to take you know you don't necessarily need to be a vegan a vegetarian you know a high meat person um, a Mediterranean diet person what you really need to do is eat whole food you know whole food real meat real fish real eggs real vegetables real food and you want to stay away from the processed foods the foods that are designed to be hyper palatable they have the right salt the crunch the, the sugar. Uh, they're in the center of the grocery store. They are laden with chemicals we don't want, preservatives and colorings and sh added sugars and oils that are unhealthy. Processed seed oils, safflower, canola, these oils are processed with heat and they're oxidized and they're dangerous for us. They're not optimal. So no one needs to be perfect. I would, and I certainly am not. It's the keep it simple approach. Eat more of the whole food and less possibly much less of the processed foods that are in the center of the grocery store that comes in bags and boxes and the foods that come through your driver's side window. You know, <laughs> eat less of those, eat more of the others, and you'll have great health. And then in regards to, you know, the, what's changed, you know, about 40,000 years ago, if you looked at the standard, if you looked at human beings, this was pre-agriculture. Agriculture really came into being in the Fertile Crescent 10,000 years ago. But 40,000 years ago, Human beings, um, they were hunters. Mm -hmm. They gathered when they had to. They hunted primarily. Mm -hmm. when, you look at, when you look at their bones and you study the isotopes of oxygen and nitrogen and phosphorus, these, these human beings were more of a hunter and more of a carnivore than even wolves. We were highest, highest on when you looked at mammals in regards to the amount of meat and animal products that we ate. We primarily, we were hunters and we gathered when we had to. So humans, human physiology is clearly designed to eat animal products. Um, and if we can raise those in a healthy way that's healthy for the planet, these can clearly be a part of a healthy diet. And the two things that are out there, you know, these days is that there's some fear of saturated fat that may come from animal products. And there's some fear of red meat. In the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, one of the most respected journals in our country, if not the world, had an article just last month, and I presented it at a, um, a conference of physicians just a few weeks ago, actually, the details of it. And, and what they talked about is that saturated fat does not cause heart disease. It is not something that we need to refrain from. That the data that we were given in the 80s and the 90s to, to shy from saturated fat and instead eat you know highly processed carbohydrates was the wrong message and not consistent with what we know from our ancestral understanding and now our modern scientific understanding so uh, important information and then the second thing is about red meat so the the data about red meat is that it's possible it's these and you know about these you know this these uh, statistical analyses <laughs> what they did is they did um, an observational study, a population-based study, an epidemiological study, and they saw that people who ate red meat uh, had a slight increase in cancer, a slight increase. So if a person has a risk of, say, 5%, if some of the high meat eaters had a 5.1%, um, so the, the absolute difference was minimal. And the, the issue is for many people that eat red meat, 
they're eating red meat in highly processed foods. They're eating it in lunch meats. They're eating it coming through their driver's side windows at some sort of fast food restaurant with a lot of poor quality carbohydrates and poor quality. So there's an unhealthy user bias for, for this. But people who eat a, a, a diverse diet, an omnivorous diet with colorful vegetables and berries and nuts and beans and healthy red meat, there's no data that that provides any, any danger. And I'll just tack on one other thing there. There is good data now that large herbivores like cows actually sequester, sequester carbon in our, and, and improve the quality of soils. So if you take a large herbivore and you have them on a grass field, you know, in a lot of these grasslands that they're on, they're not arable lands. They're not lands that people could make a large monocrop on because they're hilly and there's trees around but they, they subsist great there. And they have their naturally applied water, so we're not adding water to the land. Water is there by the rain, would be there anyway. These animals then, as they eat and they forage and they use their big hoofs they, and they defecate with their fertilizer, they enrich the soil, just like the big herds of bison enrich the soils that we now have monocrops on. You know. Um, a couple hundred years ago, we had thousands and thousands, millions of bison throughout the world, throughout our, particularly our mid-America, and, and they improved the soil was, you know, meters thick. And now with our monocrops, we've lessened that. And we think about, you know, if eating an animal is, seems uh, abhorrent to some people, think what happens if you, if you take grasslands and you turn them into a monocrop of soy or corn or wheat, what you've done is you've, you've reduced the diversity of that land significantly, not only by plants, but you've changed the insects, you've changed the small animals, the voles and the mice and the other animals, and you significantly decrease their habitat and you've killed those animals. Mm-hmm. But when you put large herbivores on there, they return. The, the diversity of the insects and the animals change and it becomes a more healthy biodynamic. And so some of the most sophisticated farmers these days are biodynamic farmers using the wonderful benefits of herbivores along with growing. And we, and, and so this can be very, very helpful. So I hear you saying that grass fed large animals, cows, yeah, might be the way to go rather than feedlot cows are we comparing there is that yeah. a comparison yeah. i think that's a really good thing to say you know most of our most of our cows or beef are grass-fed almost everyone every every cow is initially grass-fed and as you said the commercial agricultural feed operations the CAFOs, over the last few months of their lives they quarantine them they feed them only corn and corn makes them uh, gain weight and add fat but it also causes disease and illness because they're tightly compacted. It's not a good social structure. They can't move as they need to. They're neat. They require antibiotics to resist infections that they wouldn't have been getting unless they were concentrated in these commercial agricultural feed operations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's an unhealthy. So if you get grass-fed and grass-finished, these are wonderful animals mm-hmm. and quite healthy for you. Um, and, and really healthy for our, our, our planet too. Uh, you know, it's uh, it can be part of a, healthy because there's many lands out there dick that are available for herbivores like this and they could be bison it can be deer it could be you know elk it could be you know goats they're arable they're non-arable lands that are suitable they're grasslands mm-hmm. they're not suitable for farming but they're wonderful 
for these animals. And so we can use it and it has natural supplies of water, et cetera. So it's not that, you know, a person needs to eat meat all day long because uh, it's going to be hard to feed a billion people. But if we do it right and we do it locally, like you're an advocate of, uh, we can get good quality meat in sufficient quality quantity to add to the nutrient density and quality of people's uh, nutrition. So uh, not for everybody, there's social reasons and personal reasons and religious and reasons why a person may not want to eat meat. But to think that it's somehow non-helpful for human beings is really diametrically opposed to what we know about our ancestral diet. And when we really look at biodynamic farms, you know, these, these animals help restore, restore the, the grasslands, so. Well, to help uh, me as a consumer, are, are there any labels that say not only grass-fed, but grass-finished? There are, and you can see those at grocery stores. Uh, even our local ones will have some of that. But then, of course, the, the health food stores that may be in Columbia, for example, um, uh, they will certainly have grass-fed and grass-finished. And online these days, there are fabulous uh, companies that will send you grass-fed, grass-finished animals and organically grown chicken and pasture-raised uh, pigs. And a place, in it, and I have no financial relationship to them, but there's a place called U.S. Wellness Meats that happens to be in Cape Girardeau of Missouri that, that distributes these actually nationwide. Uh, they, they have, it's a co-op of farmers and ranchers and, and they have fabulous, and the quality is amazing, and, the, and it tastes different too. It's a, it's a higher quality food for human beings. Could you repeat that link again uh, for the Cape Girardeau? Yes, it's U.S. Wellness Meats. Yeah, good. Yeah, I hadn't heard of that. Thank you. That's yeah, wonderful. Yeah. So why do you have to recommend to, to folks to take supplements if we could simply take care of things with the foods that we eat. Yeah, so, so we use supplements to supplement a diet, and sometimes we use supplements to help um, almost in a nutraceutical way, so a little bit higher level to get some sort of benefit if a person's having some symptoms. So we know now that our soil is depleted of zinc, depleted of magnesium. So even though we're growing it, the foods that we grow have, you know, when you compare them to, you know, a few decades back, and they have done this, you know, some of the important minerals are less. And then you also talked about how, you know, um, you know, apples and bananas and our fruits and our vegetables have changed, you know, uh, apple, uh, you know, potatoes used to be small and multicolored. Uh, uh, apples used to be small and tart. Uh, berries weren't the size of an apple back then, they were small and tart. And their nutrient qualities and their the polyphenols and the, uh, the, the pigments in them and the things that are so supportive were really good. The fiber in them were high and the sugar levels were low. So that's, that's really different. So it's not uncommon for humans as they get, both because of genetic variation that they might have, they may need more B vitamins because of genetics, uh, polymorphism, we talked about the, those slight differences between you and I or other people that they might need more B vitamins, for example. But there's also these issues that, that there are certain nutrients like vitamin D that's really not found in most of our food in sufficient amounts to give a person what they need, particularly in this time of infectious disease pandemic. I'd, I'd like to mention that just a little bit more in a minute. And then there are, there are changes in our, in our stomach as we age, so much so that we don't produce as much acid. We don't have the, the factor that's necessary to absorb B12. 
it's very common that adults over 50 will be start to become low in B12, right? Mm -hmm. They'll be low in vitamin D. And so that's why that sort of supplementation is needed. And then there's the nutraceutical edge. So there, a restless leg syndrome is a common syndrome for adults where they, they, in the evening time, their legs start to feel, well, they feel restless and they're, they might, they have an agitated, irritating feeling in them. It can disrupt their evening and even their sleep. And it turns out if I give if I give magnesium, which is a supplement at higher dose, more than they need to survive, but at a higher dose, it's enough to calm the nervous system and give us a beneficial effect for many people with restless leg syndrome. Let me say, if you would allow me real quick to, uh, to mention something about vitamin D, because I think this is exceptionally important for our community. It's very clear that vitamin D makes a difference in our immune health. We've known that for years. We've known that people that take vitamin, three, uh, vitamin D3 through the winter, that they, they get less severe, less common respiratory tract illness. Now let's talk about it related to COVID. There were two very important studies in the last 30 days. The first is the University of Chicago study where they followed 500 people who had had a vitamin D level in the last year. And they looked at this group of 500 people and said, who got COVID? And people who had a vitamin D level less than 20 were twice as likely to actually contract COVID as those that had a normal vitamin D. So less than 20, twice as likely to get COVID. Well, it turns out that about 40% of Americans as we sit today are vitamin D deficient. And, and as you get older, each decade, it becomes more and more likely. So those 60 and 70 and 80 year olds are more like 60 and 70% likely to be low in vitamin D. People of color are often more likely to be low in vitamin D. Now, if you look at the populations in our country that have uh, disproportionately suffered the, the harms of COVID, it have been our elderly, are often very low in vitamin D, and our populations of color. Okay, so this study, so this, this is the first study. People that were low in vitamin D were twice, nearly twice as likely to get COVID. The second study, they took 76 people, they followed 76 people that were admitted to the hospital for COVID, so they were sick. And, and on day one, they gave them, um, they get, for 10 days, they gave them uh, half the group, a little bit more than half the group, vitamin D, high dose, 20,000 units. That's about uh, day one, and then 10,000 units, day two, three, four, and f uh, through 10. So high dose, safe. You, we can certainly do that safely, particularly in monitor settings like that. Vitamin D is very safe. Um, typical doses for um, an adult would be about 2,000. So you can see this is up to 10 times more. Of the group that received the vitamin D, this group of hospitalized patients with COVID, sick enough to be hospitalized, only one of the people ended up in the intensive care unit. Only one landed in the ICU that were taking the high-dose vitamin D. Now, if you look at the other group, they received all of the good care, you know, the steroids and the remdesivir and the oxygen and all of this. Half of those people, half of those people ended up in the intensive care unit. So they got all of the great care, but no vitamin D, half of them. So 50% versus 2%. There was 50 people in the, in, in the group, so, so many, many. Of the people that did not get the vitamin D, two of those died. Of the people who did get the vitamin D, no one died and only one person was in the ICU. This is a very important study. So what I, would, I want our listeners to take home with them is that vitamin D is safe. Many of us are low in it. It is, it is absolutely safe for you to start supplementing, and I recommend it highly. I would do it immediately. 
at at least 2,000 international units daily. And that is absolutely a safe dose. It's certainly good for your bones. But what it does, it supports our immune system. One of the things it does in particular is it locks, it, it makes the, the lining of our nose and our throat and our respiratory tract more of a solid barrier against the entrance of COVID. And, it, and then on the back end, should we get infected with COVID, it makes it that our immune response is more balanced mm-hmm. and appropriate. So this is important and, it, and this should be out there. Everybody should know that. Yes, Dr. Fauci, what he's taking, He's taking vitamin D and he's taking vitamin C. Vitamin C is another vitamin that's been shown to decrease respiratory viruses year after year after year. And I I recommend that too. And the dose I recommend for prevention there, by the way, folks, that's safe is about 1500 milligrams. It's safe and it's been shown to be effective. So vitamin D, 2000 IU, vitamin C, 15. 100 milligrams daily. You want to spread that out, you know, a little bit here a couple of times a day. And if one of your family members or friends become hospitalized, talk to your doctor about these two very important studies, how high dose vitamin D decrease the likelihood of ICU care and death. So I should mention that uh, I'm on vitamin D3. And uh, to get that 2000 units is one drop of the liquid vitamin D3. And my doc at the time that I was told to take it said to take it sublingually. Is that uh, something that you would also recommend? It's not necessary to take vitamin D sublingually. It's more likely to be absorbed through your gastrointestinal tract rather than your oral mucosa. But um, it's important to take. Uh, Sublingual is fine. Uh, I don't generally recommend the drops because I find some people get in trouble with those as they think they're supposed to use a dropper full instead of a drop and and they they can sometimes overdose. The little capsule, capsules are about the size of a green pea that have 2,000 IU in it, so I generally recommend those. Uh, and then for many adults, or at least some adults, Dick, they you need to get your vitamin D level tested because 2,000 may not be enough. I really never seen 2000 be too much and put somebody in a dangerous range. We know that the level that we wanna see in the blood is between 40 nanograms per milliliter to 60 nanograms. And at that level, we found that bone health, immune health is better. And in fact, when we look across the population, people who have vitamin D levels, and actually cancer death is lower. People that have uh, vitamin D levels in this range, they're all cause mortality, meaning dying from any reason before age 75 goes down if their level is in the 40 to 60 range. Now, that's not the only thing that's going to help us survive past 75 in a, in a healthful way uh, with a good quality of life, but it's something to be thinking about. And it's one of those things we cannot get from our food very readily. So, I know, uh, and, and listeners... Uh, if you've just tuned in recently, I'm talking to Dr. Chris Link, uh, MD down in Jeff City, who has uh, a website, imc-jcmo.com, that stands for Integrative Medical Clinic, Integrative Medical Clinic-jcmo, Jeff City, Missouri.com. Uh, and I noticed, Chris, that you have in the menu across the top, uh, articles, radio interviews that you've had, uh, actually a little 15-minute teaching uh, programs. I'm guessing 
that you're going to have a new one very soon on some of this latest uh, research findings. So we can get a, uh, a refresher on this by checking out your website, uh, let's say in about, what, two weeks, uh, 30 days? <laughs> no, no, thanks, Dick. Um, so I do have some videos on there. Uh, I, I, they're kind of webinars where I'll, I'll be speaking and I'll have PowerPoints and this vitamin D one, I just finished it, uh, this lecture on this brief, you know, it's gonna be a five minute discussion on the use of vitamin D safely and the importance of it in COVID. Uh, I'll be sending that out in the next week or so. So you can look for that and anybody that gets it can share it. And in, at the Integrated Medicine Clinic, we really are about improving the health of our community. Now we're one small clinic, so the way that we can do that is to get out there a little bit with these radio shows, uh, through KOPN and others, through through our um, website and our webinars there. Uh, we really look to improve the health of our clinic. But the primary thing we do, Dick, at the Integrated Medicine Clinic is we look to improve the health of each individual one at a time by partnering with them to really understand what's the root cause of their illness? Why are they having some trouble with diabetes? And how can we change that? or even reverse it? Why are they having trouble with heart disease? How can we change that or possibly reverse it? Why are they having irritable bowel symptoms? How can we understand it? What can we do to help them improve it? How can we limit the medications? Now, I'm an integrated medicine doctor. That means I have a foot that's strongly in allopathic medicine and found it with more than 20 years of experience. But the other one is solid in the fact that we know pillars of health, great nutrition, great sleep, modest exercise, relaxation, understanding the person's human physiology as an individual, taking time to partner with people. This makes a powerful difference in people's lives. And the visits at the clinic are different because they're 30 minutes long, 25 minutes long. You know, the average physician visit these days is much less than that. Um, you know, maybe seven to 12 minutes. That's, that's not in my practice. I've never found that long enough to really be able to understand the person's history. What's going on at home? What's going on at work? Would it give me a great amount of time to do a, say, a nutritional history? What have you eaten in the last 24 hours? You know, what's really going on with your gut? You know, what, trying to understand. So we, we, you know, integrative medicine is wonderful. And I kind of think that it, when I think about it, I think it flanks, it's much like family medicine, but it flanks it on each side of family medicine. So on the one side, we use all of the basics, good sleep, good nutrition, understanding that. And on the other side of family medicine, we try to understand the molecular biology, understand their microbiome, understand the differences in the way they process vitamin D, you know, how they process their hormones to really understand. And that's the training that I've brought to it, the integrative medicine basics and the functional medicine, you know, um, patient specific biochemical analysis that can really help us understand. Uh, and help reverse. And if I can just just talk about what is so, one of the things that gives me great energy in the clinic, Dick, is that these days it is, type two diabetes is absolutely positively reversible. And I have seen numerous patients, ones that are, have the desire to understand and are tired of taking more medications because diabetic medications tend to make people gain weight and have progressively worse diabetes. I mean. It, keeps their sugar in check, but it doesn't improve their care. Just in the last, you know, just in the last few months, I've had people that have had elevated hemoglobin A1Cs in the 7.8, 8, 9, 10, 11, by changing their diet, teaching them what to eat and, and recommending what not to eat, 
we've been able to get these people off all of their medications, all of their medications, and bring their hemoglobin A1C, their average blood sugar, back to normal or near normal um, uh, by teaching you how to eat. There's, there is tremendous power in nutrition related to reversing diabetes. This is a great, um, uh, it's, a, it's a great challenge for a society. You know, um, there, you know, at least 30% of our people in our country have di diabetes and related conditions. There's much we can do and nutrition absolutely solves the problem. You just have to have a physician uh, that understands it. You've had to navigate COVID as everyone else has in terms of your uh, clinic. Can you share with us a little bit about how you've adapted to uh, the new environment? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for asking, Dick. What I try to do is I try to learn, and this is a we're we're novices with this COVID nineteen virus, this novel virus. Of course, we're novices with it. We are gaining more information each month. We have some basic as we went into this. We had some basic understanding of viruses, and what I try to do is I try to go to some primary research and and some of the best minds in our country that are really working. Places like Johns Hopkins. I listen to their podcasts. Dr. Fauci, the Journal of the American Medical Association. I, I don't get the data from, uh, you know, common press. I go to try to go to the most primary sources, the very best, Dr. Redfield from the CDC. These are, these are men and women that know uh, infectious disease like no others. Our CDC in, is, um, is a pillar of infectious disease health for the whole world. Uh, and so I'd like to look and learn from these folks. And here's what we've learned. We've learned that, that COVID is primarily spread through the air in, in, in aerosolized, very small droplets, you know, uh, five microns. You couldn't see them and they float in the air. This is why when you look at people who get COVID, the likelihood that they ate in a restaurant in the last two weeks is high. Mm -hmm. And in restaurants in particular where people are eating, laughing, you know, uh, talking and the air is not exchanged that these microparticles are in the air and you're and if there's even a fan blowing it is distributed throughout so dirty air is an issue okay so that's going to factor into what i do in my clinic and droplets do matter so you we've all seen somebody cough or sneeze and see a spray come from a, some drop or maybe feel it maybe or even our own or see it on the table in front of us those droplets can be infectious too so cleaning surfaces uh, washing your hands, wearing a mask. These things really are powerful. So in my clinic, what we've done, and we're gonna, we're gonna continue to make more changes, but much of our patient care now is virtual, about 80%. When a person's in the clinic, we make sure that they have their temperature taken, that they wear a mask, and we try to social dis distance, not only with our employees, where they're at least six or 12 feet apart, but also also our, also our patients. So that's been working well. We're also trying to improve the quality of the air inside because the air is number one. The droplets are number two. The air probably provides 80% or more of the infectious spread. So we have some Austin air. It's an air filter that we like. And we have now three or four in the clinic running all the time. Uh -huh. I also just talked with my, um, my HVAC person on Friday because I recently read within the last couple of days, if you can get about six air exchange and an air exchanges per hour in an indoor situation, six to nine, that you'd lessen the, the likelihood of spread. So again, these very, very tiny droplets can last in the air for hours. 
for hours. So the filters help that if it's a five micron filter or better. And, uh, and if you can air exchange. So most homes and businesses are tight. There's no air exchange. You don't want to bring the hot or the cool in from the outside. But we're going to actually create a situation where we're going to have, a, if we can, a pipe from the outside that comes into our HVAC system that allows us to get those air exchanges. Mm-hmm. Well, these are the things. In addition, to, you know, we wear a mask in our clinic. All, all, all of us do. Mm-hmm. despite. So the six feet really helps us from the droplets, Dick, the things that can just spray right across to a person. But the aerosolized, you know, a person can be 50 feet that way. And if there's air moving in the system and these things are, you know, aerosolized and suspended in the air, they'll get to that person 50 feet away. Uh, and and, and uh, so, you know, less likely than six feet, but it can still happen. So that's why these air exchanges are important. It's a challenge. We need to continue to learn. I like to go to primary sources to learn so that I can help protect the patients that come to our clinic, help protect my staff. Uh, and, um, and then all, all of our staff members are taking some of the supplements like vitamin C and vitamin D to help support the immune system. I certainly recommend that. A third supplement I recommend for most people is zinc, uh, 20 milligrams a day. So those three I think are highly important. Zinc, 20 milligrams daily, vitamin C, 1500 milligrams daily taken in divided doses and 2000 IU of vitamin D all of those. So zinc also decreases the likelihood that that COVID virus with its little tentacles will be able to attach to the cell structures of our respiratory epithelium, the lining of our, of our nose and throat and lungs, and be able to penetrate the cell. So um, these, these things are really, they're, they're important and they can be helpful. But I'll tell you, Dick, more than just those supplements, if a person uh, engages the pillars of health like you do, getting your walking, eating, eating healthy food, getting good sleep, that, that'll, that is the most powerful thing a person can do in regards and keeping their blood sugar right are the most important things a person can do to, to uh, promote health and kind of a resilience to the infection and a resilience to the overblown uh, um, inflammation that can go along with a more serious infection. I'm going to bring in one more area of, uh, sure. of wellness that it's hard to deal with in your clinic in some ways. Uh, You're familiar with Bruce Lipton's biology of belief and how our internal environment of thoughts and uh, emotions actually create and influence our health. And in our world today, and particularly in our country today, there are so many thoughts uh, related to fear and anger and frustration. Do you have some suggestions uh, in terms of your clinic work, or maybe this is just uh, something you have to say on the side? I don't know how you handle this area. Well, not a, not an area that I have great depth of knowledge in. I, I do understand that when a person has uh, kind of uh, smoldering anger or persistent fear, how that's going to affect our neurotransmitters and our physiology and our cortisol and our epinephrine and how those things are going to negatively impact our health. Mm-hmm. And we know that things like meditation is, is a way to settle some of that and, to, and it's a way to exercise our, our parasympathetic nervous system, mm-hmm. the nervous system that helps us rest and digest and to heal. So I, as a part of my life, I, I meditate daily uh, and, um, 
and I recommend it in my clinic. Um, you know, simple breathing techniques and um, and some meditation. There's great. There's some good books out there. There's some great podcasts. This is an area that um, that I want to continue to explore in my life, and so that I can teach my patients better. There's an there's a new book about uh, this uh, by uh, Mr. Shetty S H E T T Y. You may know him. It's called uh, Think Like a Monk, which is you know that that some of the stressors in our life, if we put the right perspective, kind of the mindset to them, uh, that they're there and we can manage them and that they don't need to overwhelm us, that those things can help us. Um, I'm taking time to breathe. One of my favorite breathing techniques is something called the four, seven, eight breath. Dick, you, you breathe into the count of four slowly, you hold your breath to the count of seven, and then you breathe out slowly to the count of eight. And just doing that one time, if people are listening out there and they have a minute that they can just do that where they breathe in slowly to the count of four, hold to the count of seven and breathe out to the count of eight, you'll feel more relaxed after the first breath. And it's found that if a person does this, four cycles of this, this four, seven, eight breath, four cycles twice a day over a period of month, there, there is you know, clear benefits to their physiology and lessening some of the cortisol and the epinephrine and some of the, the, de you know, the detrimental angst that people have. I use this frequently in my clinic. Uh, people don't know it, but I might get up and walk between patients and I'm taking four breaths in, holding my breath for seven and breathing eight so that I can be more present and more, uh, more effective in my communication with patients and with my mission to improve people's, each individual's care and understanding about their care. So I'd love the 478. Dr. Weil taught me that specifically and personally. And uh, it's something I use uh, for sure. And I recommend. So just uh, for a uh, clarification on 478, does it matter if you breathe in through your nose or out through your nose or your right nostril, left nostril, you know? Years. <laughs> yeah. So a person can keep it simple. Uh, they can do whatever feels right, uh, Dick. So it's so important just to do it, and the benefits are so high, no matter whether you breathe in through your nose or mouth. But you're right. It would be better to breathe in through your nose because that's how the human physiology is really designed to to open up the nostrils in the airway, to moisten and filter the air. It's calming and actually helps many, many things. And then the breathe out slowly through the mouth is the way to do it. And some of the things you mentioned, like the alternate nasal breathing and so forth, those are, you know, those are advanced things that we that are certainly beneficial and have their place. But in much of what I teach, if you can keep it simple, eat real food, get you know, get your seven thousand steps, you know, get some hugs every day if 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 it's available to you, to close family members that you know are safe. Uh, as you can, and uh, and do some do, do do some breathing work, a little bit of it. Um, get some good sleep. Eat you know eat real food. Stay away from processed food. All of these things can be modestly done, and and it can make marked impact on our lives. Well, I, I hate to have to bring it up, but healthcare costs money. <laughs> How do you see accessibility to more people? I guess is is what I. Simplest yeah. way to ask the question. Yeah, that, so that's a big question, probably probably something you and I could talk about for a whole show. Yeah. Um, you, because right now there's, with the Affordable Care Act, there's more people that are covered in our country, but there's still a lot of people that have insufficient insurance and, and uh, with modest income and they can be overburdened by the cost of it. So we haven't quite figured that out in America and I'm, I'm hoping that we will figure out a way to fully insure our 
our populace because it's only going to improve the, the the function of the whole country. And uh, I saw too many people in the in the ER that were working poor that had poor insurance and they were working hard in their lives. And the and when there was a medical concern, that it just caused you know uh, really severe financial distress. In my clinic, Dick, we we had been in the just a few months ago, we changed to a cash-based model for most patients. And we, because the, it would, in a small clinic, I'm a private practitioner, and it was so expensive, I had to hire a couple of people just to be able to, just to be able to interface and collect from the insurance. It was, it was costing me so much to interface and collect from the insurances that we couldn't keep our lights on. Uh, you know, and so we were going to have to close the clinic uh, because it was not a, a effective business. So hmm. we've let those people go. Now we have a very simple direct relationship with patients. It's a we have a, a for our standard visit. It's one hundred and thirty five dollars. Most people would need to see me once or twice a year, and for most people, they end up spending less because if they go to a, a standard physician and the visit's three hundred and fifty dollars, and their insurance covers forty, you know, seventy percent of that, they're still paying about the same. Mm -hmm. uh, and so this is a little different model. We do, by the way, work with straight Medicare because that they have a very efficient model that I can just put it into the computer and they pay us. So it makes it uh, workable and it doesn't require two full-time equivalents to actually make that just very little work for that. The other insurers were much more burdensome and in a big, you know, big, big multi-specialty clinic or hospital system, they can, they can afford to have, you know, a room of people to interface with insurance companies. Mm -hmm. uh, in my clinic, I needed to be a private practitioner to have the, the latitude to be able to spend more time with patients. The 30 minutes, my new visits are something like 45 or 50 minutes long. I really need to get to know people and make a huge impact. But let me, let me give you, you know, if I circle back to the, these people that I've worked with very recently to reverse diabetes, you know, the medications for diabetes can be hundreds, if not thousands of dollars a month. Right. Right. And so my, my goal is to improve the quality of life, reduce the requirement and the burden of pharmaceuticals, both the, you know, they have both benefits and potential side effects and they certainly have cost. I use these medications when necessary, when they improve the quality and the health of a person, but if I can teach them more about how to take care of themselves, we can lessen their immediate healthcare costs and, of course, their long-term healthcare costs. Right. Uh, so uh, I have a very unique clinic. I'm I'm, I'm the only person in only physician in Missouri that's trained in both integrative medicine and functional medicine. I hold a teaching uh, position at the at the Capital Region Medical Center Family Medicine Program, and I teach integrative medicine there. Uh, I and passionate about what I do, and I I, I derive great um, personal um, benefit from partnering with people and help in giving them the information that allows them to make effective, sustainable changes in their lives. It's something that really uh, gives me great pleasure, and I'm so pleased that I can be involved in that as a partner in healthcare with these people. Mm -hmm. Wonderful, wonderful. We're we're fortunate to have you. Uh, Thanks. We have just a couple of minutes left, and, and there's a, a lingering uh, sort of a background question related to functional medicine. It, did it used to be sort of a, a labeled orthomolecular medicine at one time, and it just, just morphed into a new label, sort of like health education is now wellness? I, is, is that fair to say? 
Yeah, I think so, Dick. And it, you know, what it show, what it demonstrates to me is that your understanding and familiarity of this goes pretty deep. So let me tell you where that orthomolecular term came from. It, it came from a physician named Linus Pauling, uh, a scientist, not a physician. He's a, he's a PhD scientist, right. uh, you know, in the mid-century of the 20th century. And he was a great vitamin C advocate. And, uh, and he, um, I believe, was out of one of the Northwestern universities. I, I want to say... Washington or, or Oregon. In any case, the Linus Pauling Institute is still there. Mm -hmm. And a physician and another PhD trained with him, and he started functional medicine through you know, this approach to orthomolecular medicine, meaning that if we can really understand human biochemistry, mm -hmm. then we can really improve health by the way we feed people and maybe provide some supplementations that may help with, say, you know, illnesses of the mind, schizophrenia, or or anxiety, or our immune system related things, or things like I talked about with restless legs, how magnesium can help that. And so from the orthomolecular medicine and Linus Pauling, other uh, scientists uh, began and started functional medicine. And from there, they said that that uh, first functional medicine meeting, orthomolecular me meeting happened in a phone booth. There was about five people there. <laughs> and, and now it's a worldwide movement, the Institute of functional medicine that has um, has training programs for um, for interested uh, medical professionals, nurse practitioners, physicians assistants, oh. uh, dietitians, and and physicians, and and they train people you know internationally and in in orthomolecular medicine. That means really using the biochemistry that you and I were taught in our training, mm -hmm. uh, and really going back to understand you know what is the Krebs cycle. What, what are the, you know, how are proteins metabolized? You know, how do we use uh, our energy in our mitochondria appropriately? What are all of those little nuances and how can we facilitate that so that, so the human, so that human right in front of us can perform their very best? Wonderful. Well, I, I'm glad to get that connection. That's, uh, that's wonderful. Thank you. So we have, let's say, let's say we have three minutes left. Uh, Dr. Okay. Chris Link, uh, MD in Jefferson City with the uh, Integrative Medicine Clinic, uh, which is located just off Edgewood on the west side of town. Um, yes, 1002 Diamond Ridge, and it's right above, say, Dunn Brothers Coffee. Ah, okay. And that plaza there, most people know where, knows where that at, is at. Speaking of coffee, is, is coffee okay? <laughs> yeah, you know, coffee is, um, when we, these, you know, when we look at studies, and there have been many, and there's been a nice review uh, by Dr. Frank Hugh, H.U., uh, professor of Harvard. He's a nutritional scientist and one of the world's most esteemed scientists. There are multiple, multiple studies that show that that, that coffee um, decreases cancer, some cancers, it improves depression, uh, it reduces cardiovascular, cardiovascular disease, it improves all-cause mortality. It is full of polyphenols, healthful polyphenols. It lowers liver cancer. Uh, it is not a detrimental, detrimental um, uh, uh, vice that people think they have, and it, it's really rather healthy. And, and we found up to four or five cups a day is, uh, is a healthy range. Now, um, the thing we have to balance with that is sleep and irritation and agitation. But uh, many people, I know my father, who lived into his 80s, uh, drank you know, many cups of coffee all day long. Now, I can't have one afternoon. If I do, I won't sleep very well. So people need to balance that. Right. But coffee is absolutely helpful for you. I recommend against using coffee creamers, things that come out of packages that you rip open and have a 
you know, array of chemicals that you put in there to make it taste this better, you know, vanilla or sweet or this. These are, these are poor quality things to add to your mm -hmm. coffee. If you want to add something to your coffee, add some whole cream or some half and half because we know now based on that uh, article in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology that saturated fat that comes from dairy is okay for us. We can have a modest amount with no significant potential deleterious effects. And I particularly like uh, a little bit of whole cream in my coffee in the morning, and that's safe. But the creamers that come out of a can or a, or a pouch are not healthy. Okay, I'm going to throw one more. One more at you. <laughs> okay. What else? What other good things that we could tell our audience? That... I've just been introduced to this uh, thing called ghee, G-H-E-E. -E. Have you come across ghee? Sure. So ghee's been a part of cultures for a long time, particularly Ayurvedic cultures. This is butter that's been warmed, and the proteinaceous part of the butter has been scooped off. So it's really, it's really butter fat, uh, and it's an array of fats, mostly saturated fats. And for people that have any uh, dairy allergies, allergic to some of the proteins in dairy, like casein, for example, which is a common allergen, a person can have ghee and enjoy the, 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 the flavors and the benefits of that in their life. Uh, and it's, uh, I personally like butter. I like the flavor of butter better. I don't have any dairy intolerances, so that's okay. But ghee is also fine. It's available. It's a little bit more expensive because it has to be processed in a different way, but not processed in a in a chemical uh, way, it's uh, it's processed by mild heat, and it's then and then it's strained so that the, the proteinaceous portion is removed. So ghee is fine, and many people love it, and it's certainly part of Ayurvedic uh, tradition. What a great pleasure to spend this hour with you, uh, Dr. Chris Link, and I hope I don't have to see you very often. And, and Dick, if that's the case, it means uh, means I, I'm I'm doing my job, and you're doing your part too. <laughs> I say that because, uh, as I said earlier, folks, uh, Dr. Link is, is my physician as well. So uh, thank you for that and for all your wisdom today. Okay. Peace and blessings to all and good health in this time of uh, the pandemic. We need to physically distance, but we shouldn't social distance. We need to eat well, get modest exercise, sleep well. And, and, and it's clear, you guys, that vitamin D makes a difference in the likelihood that you'll get infection. I strongly recommend 2000 IU Daily, which is safe and effective. Take good care, everybody. And remember, folks, wherever you are, that is your world. So please leave your world cleaner, more peaceful, and more loving than you found it, because if it is to be, it is up to us. So take care and talk to you soon.